Gospels, uh, Romans chapter 12. If you do not have a Bible, just raise your hand. Uh, someone will come uh, through and, and pass you one. Romans 12th chapter, and we're going to be looking at the first two verses. It's Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 for our time together. Someone who has one of the pew Bibles, can you just shout out what page number Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 is on? 947 is the page number, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Um, can we all stand for the reading and hearing of God's word? Uh, Romans chapter 12. Verse 1 and 2. When you have it, say amen. You need a minute, say wait a minute. I heard somebody on this side. Okay. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And it reads, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Such is the reading of God. You may be seated. For the time that is ours to share, we want to think from this passage under this thought, a living sacrifice. How about that? A living sacrifice. It is that great apostolic writer himself, responsible for at least a fourth one-fourth of the New Testament that we have in our canon today. The Apostle Paul is speaking here, uh, writing to his brothers and sisters in Rome so that they might understand more fully uh, just what it is that the Father has accomplished through the Son by means of the Holy Spirit. Many of Paul's letters would be what we would call occasional not referring to the frequency with which they are written, but that they are referring to a particular occasion. There is something that Paul has either heard about or that he wants to address directly. First Corinthians is definitely an occasional letter. I mean, Paul has got word that there are two sisters beefing in the church. And he has to write a letter and tell them, one, stop beefing. And then he goes on to address a number of issues that he's heard about going on at the church of Corinth. It's not as discernible in the book of Romans what the particular occasion was because Paul did not plant this church. He had never visited this church. Matter of fact, one of the reasons for writing, uh, he'll tell in chapter 15, is that he plans to visit on his way, hopefully, to Spain. And he, in his apostolic situa situatedness, will collect an offering on, a way, on his way to Spain. So Paul writes a letter saying, I'm coming through. I've heard about y'all. Y'all doing good. I need some help. And he'll get an offering on the way to Spain because he wants to spread the gospel. At least that is his intention. 
Romans takes the shape of more of a theological treatise uh, because Paul is actually unpacking in the book of Romans uh, what this gospel is. What is it about? What has happened? What is the problem that it has remedied? And he wants the individuals at the church at Rome, namely the Jews and the Gentiles, to find themselves united underneath this gospel of God. This is Paul, who was once called Saul. The transition from Saul to Paul um, is not indicative of, of a kind of spiritual maturation, as we would perhaps think of Abram to Abraham, or Sarai to Sarah, or Jacob to Israel. But Saul is his Hebrew name. Uh, Paul is his Roman name. Uh, in the book of Philippians chapter 3, uh, Paul lets you know that he is in fact a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he is from the tribe of Benjamin, that he uh, was a Pharisee, that concerning the law he was zealous, he was a persecutor of the church. This is part of Paul's testimony. What I love about Paul's testimony is that the zeal with which he persecuted the church is outmatched by the zeal with which he then promotes the church after his transition. Acts chapter 9, you see the story of Paul undergoing transformation when he is literally met by Jesus himself on his way to persecute, to terrorize more Christians. What I love about that story in the, in the book of Acts chapter 9 is that as Paul is on his way to Damascus to persecute more Christians, he is met by the risen Savior, scales fall off his eyes, he is transformed, he has now been converted, and the people who he first went to persecute are now his brothers and sisters in Christ. And the individuals who, who Paul was actually sent by, individuals who, were, who, who didn't believe in the way, as Christians were called, people who wanted Paul to go and, and find individuals who were followers of this Jesus, they heard about Paul's conversion. They hear that Paul has now turned on them, that he is now the enemy that they once considered a friend. And Paul now has to seek the assistance of the individuals who he had originally went to persecute. And there's a passage in the book of Acts that says that Paul has to be let out through a hole in the wall because his former boys are after him. Can you imagine what that looks like? Paul was on his way to persecute and terrorize and perhaps kill Christians. He has to now seek the assistance of the Christians. They have to let him out through a hole in the wall because the people who sent him are actually after him because he has changed his mind about Jesus. He's like, y'all, I appreciate this. I wasn't going to hurt y'all too bad. <laughs> I really appreciate this. Paul is used mightily of God in the book of Acts. We hear Paul's missionary journeys. We hear Paul at Lystra and Paul at Berea and Paul at Thessalonica and Paul at Corinth. Paul is used so mightily that, that the scriptures actually say that, that people were bringing handkerchiefs and aprons that had been touched by Paul and that those things, those items, that material culture was actually made effectual by God to work miracles. In Acts chapter 19, we hear that individuals who were seeing God work mightily by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul wanted a little bit of 
in on the game. And so these uh, itinerant Jewish exorcists in Acts chapter 9, they see that Paul is working mightily by the power of the Holy Spirit and, and they want to get in on that game. They want to have the same power. And so they, they begin trying to exorcise demons uh, in the name of, of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And listen to what the demons say to these itinerant Jewish exorcists. Um, Jesus we've heard about. We even know Paul. We heard about him. Paul's a bad boy. Who in the ham sandwich are you? And the text says that these individuals actually are beaten naked by the demonic individuals and they run out with their clothes at the spot. Paul is the one who is writing to the church at Rome here and his, 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 his reputation precedes him. This is the same Paul who was preaching uh, uh, for so long uh, uh, in Acts uh, uh, chapter 19 and chapter 20 that he preaches for so long that there's a young man who falls asleep while he's preaching. He must, that was a long time. This young man named Eutychus falls out of a window and ostensibly breaks his neck because he's taken up to be dead. Paul goes downstairs, heals the man, and then goes back upstairs and keeps preaching. Paul is writing to the church at Rome here and he wants them to understand what it is that God has done. And in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul is deeply concerned about something. The text says, I appeal to you, therefore. Now that word appeal uh, in the ESV, it, it, it translates a word that, that, that has the connotation that, 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 that Paul, Paul wants them to see and feel something with urgency. The King James Version, the King Jizzle, the King James Version says, I beseech you, which is why it's not in the ESV, because nobody knows what beseech means. But you can get the feeling and the sense that, that if I told you I besought someone versus I appealed to someone, even if you didn't know what besought means, it just sounds like it's more, right? I didn't, I didn't appeal to you, I besought you. To, to beseech means really to plead with. It means to beg. What is bringing Paul to this situation where he is urgently asking them to consider something? He is appealing to them. He is beseeching them. Therefore. Now, if I was about to tell you to do something, let's say I was going to ask Amos for a $100 bill. I say, Amos, I need $100. Uh, and so, mm, 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 therefore, can you give me the money? Amos would say, wait, wait a minute. What, what's what, what's mm, 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 therefore? Amos is going to want to know what kind of situation precedes the therefore so that he can proceed to tell me that he's not going to give me the money anyway. Paul says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Paul is going to marshal some evidence in order to stake his claim that what he is asking these Christians to do, and by extension you and I, is worth what he's asking us to do. And it doesn't begin in chapter 12. We have to go back to chapter 1. Don't act brand new. You knew I was going to do that. <laughs> in chapter 1, uh, Paul is going to begin making an argument. 
Paul actually has to set the stage for an argument that he wants to make, and he does so methodically, that he is arguing uh, logically. He is arguing according to reason, not fallen reason, but according to spiritual reason. And in Romans chapter 1, he wants to convince the hearers of this letter of something that relates to how we ought perceive the situation of the Gentiles. And Paul says that the wrath of God in chapter 1 verse 18 has been revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And then he goes on to say this, that, 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 that what, may be, what may be known about God is clearly perceived or ought have been clearly perceived that the invisible attributes of God, namely uh, uh, his divinity and his power, uh, can be seen in the things that God has created. Therefore, he says that these individuals are left without excuse. What is Paul getting at? Paul is saying that the God who created the heavens and the earth have left evidences, vestiges, marks in his creation that speaks to the reality that he exists. This is the truth that, that, that Psalms 19 uh, verse 1 gets uh, at. It says that the, the, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse shows his handiwork. That I ought be able to just look at the creation and know that the creation bears witness to the fact that there is a creator. That the fact that there is a created thing alone ought tell me something about the creator, ought tell me something about his character, and it ought make me feel like I am accountable as a thing that is part of that created order to that creator. The Paul says, even the, the, the Gentile who, who, who doesn't have the oracles of God, doesn't have the Torah, doesn't have the Hebrew Bible, even they are without excuse because they should have been able to look outside and see that I existed. Isn't that something? You're like, I just walk outside and it's cold. But God says that creation tells us something about who he is and our responsibility before him. So he says, he concludes that the Gentile is without excuse. But before uh, uh, the Hebrew, but before the Jew uh, finds himself feeling with uh, pride and becoming boastful, in uh, chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to the Jew and he concludes likewise that the Jew is likewise without excuse because even though they had the law, they had the Torah, it meant nothing if you didn't obey it. So Paul, Paul interrogates this notion that because they are the chosen people of God, because they are elect of God, that that in and of itself meant that they had a reconciled, a redeemed status with the creator. Paul says, no, 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 that's not true. Just because I gave you the law doesn't mean that you're saved. You only are saved if you do what I told you to do and you haven't done it. So Paul will conclude chapter one by saying, look, yeah, circumcision is great, but your circumcision doesn't mean anything if you don't obey the law. If you don't obey the law that I gave you, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, Paul says, look, that circumcision just becomes a cut in the flesh. So in chapter one, he has concluded that the Gentiles are without excuse. In chapter two, he has concluded that the Jew is without excuse. So chapter three, he says that everybody is in unbelief. In chapter three, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, Paul, again, he's building an argument. And if you've been tracking with him, you recognize at this point that humanity is in trouble. 
Because if God wants to save you and I, there has to be a paradigm or a model or something that can be appealed to that would make this thing work because it's not going to be our works. So Paul reaches back uh, in the book of Genesis and he says there was this man named Abraham and he talks about Abraham's faith and he reaches back to Genesis chapter 15 that after God tells Abraham the promises that he's going to give him land, that he's going to give him seed, he's going to make him a blessing. Uh, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and that belief, that faith was accounted, was credited, was taken to be righteousness. So Paul says, there, there it is. There's the paradigm. If the Bible has said, I know it didn't, but if the Bible has said Abraham performed perfectly and his performance was taken to be, was accounted to be righteousness, that would be bad news for you. In other words, if the example, if the model that Paul appealed to was that actually the way this thing works is by you performing correctly, you and I are in trouble. So Paul picks a model in, 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 in chapter 4 in the person of Abraham. And he says, no, it's not works, it's faith. He says, actually, Abraham believed he had faith before he was even circumcised. So that makes Abraham the father, the spiritual father of not just the, the Jews who believe, but the Gentiles who believe. You see how Paul is, is cooking this thing up? Therefore, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. I'm going to say that one more again. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You know, declaring that you have peace with somebody doesn't really mean much if you didn't know that y'all were beefing. Somebody comes up to you after a long time and says, you know what, man, I forgive you. We cool. You're like, okay, well, I mean, whatever makes you sleep better at night. If you didn't know, if you haven't felt that there was enmity between you and God, chapter 5, verse 1 wouldn't hit you the way it's supposed to hit you. And here, to be honest, it doesn't, it doesn't often hit me the way it's supposed to hit me. Chapter 5, verse 1 is one of the climaxes of the book of Romans that he has worked his way through, having concluded that everybody is in unbelief, having concluded that everybody is incapable of performing their way into salvation. He says, you and I have been justified. You and I who believe have been justified by faith. And to make it even more clear, he says, look, this is how this thing went down. While you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He wants you to understand that at the same time that you and I were sinners, at that time, at that perspective, at that status, is when your Savior died for you. Which means he didn't wait for you to get it uh, somewhat together. He didn't wait for you to at least look like you had it together. He died while you was totally jacked up. While you and I were at our worst, he was living at his best. Uh, uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So Paul now wants to get this church under the gospel of God out of a conception of the law of performance and now tell them that we're operating under grace. Now Paul is going to think ahead of what the, what the imagination might do 
if I'm thinking about now the fact that I've been saved by grace, and, and actually Paul will make this statement at the end of chapter 5 that where, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. In other words, he was just saying that the, the person and work of Christ was totally effectual to cover our sins, that where there was sin, there was grace, and where there was more sin, there was even more grace. And so the thinking person in chapter 6 might say, okay, chapter 6, verse 1, if I want there to be more and more grace, why don't I just continue in sin? That sounds retarded, doesn't it? If I want to amplify, multiply God's grace, then there needs to be some sin involved. And so since I want God to look glorious and gracious, why don't I just help him out with the sin part? And Paul says, no, 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 no. Because if this transformation has happened, then he uses a symbolic of baptism. You have actually died to sin if you who you say you are. That you no longer use your members as instruments of unrighteousness. But Paul says in chapter 6 that you use them as instruments of righteousness now. In chapter 7, he has to come back and redeem uh, how people are thinking about the law. Because if the law has been so closely tethered to sin, then I might conclude that something's wrong with the law. And Paul wants to tell them, no, 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 there's nothing wrong with the law. There's something wrong with you. He says, the law is perfect. The law is true. The law is good. If it was not for the law, I wouldn't have known what a transgression was. You didn't know you were speeding until you passed that 15 or 20 miles per hour in D.C. Like, I can get out and walk faster than that. That's called a speed trap, by the way. That's a problem in D.C. But you wouldn't know you were speeding until you saw that sign posted. You thought you were good. You were cruising at 45, speed limit 12. <laughs> a true story, when I first moved to D.C. Uh, for an internship back in 2012, uh, I wasn't aware of uh, the camera system. I just, I just didn't know. And I remember I, Jeremy, Jeremy McLean, we did the internship together back in 2012. And uh, I was just driving around, just living my D.C. life, right? And I, and I remember telling Jeremy once, I said, man, look, man, I, it's something weird going on. Like at night, I said, at night when I'm driving, I see these flashes everywhere around my car. <laughs> true story. Act sunny. True story. And Jeremy backs up like, oh, I'm like, yo, what's up? Like, is it, who, who, who are taking pictures? Who taking pictures? And he tells me this website. He's like, Stephen, um, go to this website and put your license plate in. <laughs> I had six tickets. I had six. I had six. So this is me, you know, going down before the court. And You don't talk to the judge one-on-one, -on -one, by the way. They sit you in a room. And you have to plead your case in front of air. I'm like, oh, man, y'all going to have me out here looking silly. So I sit in front of the judge and I say, you know, you know, how you doing? Uh, I said, you know, I, I just moved here. I, I, I didn't know. And the folks around think I'm just lying my butt off, right? They're like, oh, you going to go with that one? <laughs> but I, I didn't know. Until I had a realization of what the standard was. In many ways, I didn't know how, how much of a sinner or transgressor I was. 
So Paul says the law has this function of, of amplifying sin, not because it itself is a problem, but because it shows you just how far off you were in hitting or not hitting the mark. And so in chapter 7, uh, I would argue that Paul then walks through what a life looks like under the analytics of the law. People often look at the end of chapter 7 uh, as proof positive that, that the Christian life is one of vacillation and I'm going back and forth and, and, and I'm, I'm struggling with him. That's certainly true, but I don't think that's Paul's point in chapter 7. Paul's point in chapter 7 is to say that if you analyze your life by the law, here's what people are going to be able to conclude about you. The things you say you want to do, you don't do. The things you say you don't want to do, you killing it on those. This is what a life looks like under the lens of the law. And Paul wants to show them those who are wedded to the law, those who are attached to the law, those who can't release themselves from the law, that this is what it looks like. Here is your end if you go the way of the law. So he has to convince them that this, that this justification by faith in Jesus Christ is actually the way in which you, you find yourself redeemed from this body of death. And so when he gets to chapter 8, verse 1, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation? For those that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit of God, you and I are no longer judged according to our works. Paul says there's no, no longer any condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. That, that we actually have now a, 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 a helper that the Spirit now produces in us uh, the ability to be able to obey. That the Spirit now sanctifies us. The Spirit uh, matures us and the Spirit uh, helps us even when we're praying, Paul says. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul has to answer a question as it relates to the future of the elect people of God, namely the Jews. And he has to, he has to solidify the fact that even though for a limited time, it seems, that God has hardened a great majority of the Jewish people so that the Gentiles can be grafted in, this all has on a timetable. Paul says that for a limited time, the Gentiles are being grafted in like some wild vines. They're being grafted in so that they too can attain the promise that was already said to be theirs. But Paul wants to assure the, the Jewish hearer that God is a faithful God of his promises. That in the same way that Gentile salvation is stirring up a kind of righteous jealousy in the Jews. He wants to make sure that the Gentiles don't become boastful in their status, but understand that it's all of grace. And that there will be a future time that a good majority or portion of the Jews will come to salvation. But he wants to let them know that this is all happening under the divine orchestrated plan of God. And so in chapter 11, uh, at the end of chapter 11, Paul says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, 
1136, and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul says in 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, all that he had just gone through in chapters 1 to chapter 11, then the aggregate, he calls that the mercies of God. What could he ground his case in that would compel you to do what he is about to ask you to do? You don't get any better than the mercies of God. I mean, am I right about that? You know, the thing about mercy, you don't, you, you don't know how merciful God has been to you. You just don't. You're not aware. I'm not aware of all that God has kept from me. I mean, there are moments when I know, know that this, this, this is just God being merciful. Those very evident moments that uh, uh, typically have something to do with my own senses you know, I do a lot of driving and, and I'm often, unfortunately, driving and I haven't had a lot of rest. And, I, and I'm like, I'm sure that last 20 minutes I was dreaming. But somehow I woke up at that last, you ever woke up right in time? You thought that was you, didn't you? You woke up right in time. That's God's mercy. Mercy are what Jeremiah calls things that are new and brand new every morning. I'm part of an organization that plans a lot of conferences. And um, one of the things in the conference world, uh, the same in the broadcasting world, um, there's often a, a, a broadcast or a show, or in my instance, a, a conference that an organization puts on. And, and that conference usually has sponsors. Uh, that program usually has sponsors and there are moments in, in either that conference or that broadcast where they have to cut away from the, from the, from the regularly scheduled program and, and hear a word from our sponsors. Those are the people who are footing the bill for what you are experiencing. They, they want to make sure that you don't conclude that, that the people who are putting this on is not just me. And so we plan a lot of conferences that we often have moments where we have to break out uh, from the, the, the schedule of the conference so that the sponsors can come and, and say a word. These are the people who are responsible for putting on what people are enjoying and experiencing. Jeremiah says that the mercies of God are brand new every morning. So when you and I wake up in the morning, before we even get out of bed, there should be a moment where we recognize that this brand new day that I'm about to enjoy has been brought to me by Jesus Christ. That, 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 that he is the one who has actually foot the bill for the thing that I'm about to enjoy. You don't just wake up. See, see you thought you just woke up this morning. I mean, you went down to sleep and you thought naturally you go to sleep, you go, the, the, your heart rhythms and your blood pressure and everything was just going to sustain itself based off of what you ate last night. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Just wash that down. No, 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 no. What, what, what keeps you through those moments where you are not consciously aware of the fact that you're being sustained is not you, but it's mercy. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't appreciate it as much as I should. I 
don't. But before Paul can go any further, he wants you to understand that I'm rooting this thing in the mercies of God. And for him, the mercies of God in an immediate sense are the indicatives of what has been accomplished to get you and I who believe saved. It took a lot. It took a lot. And I'm so thankful that Paul roots what he's about to ask, what he's about to implore, what he's about, the imperative that he's about to give. I'm thankful that he roots it in the indicatives of what God has already done. Because what happens is, if God tells me to do something and I'm not rooting that, 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 that activity, that performance in what he's already done, that thing is going to get anxious for me. Because I'm going to start thinking that I have to perform my way into grace. Listen to that. You, you, we have to, we, sometimes we, we, we get into the mindset that we, we perform our way into grace. That there's something that you and I can do to make sure that this grace thing actually takes effect in our lives on a daily basis. No, Paul says, I want you to root this thing in what God has already done. Philippians chapter 2, uh, uh, verse 12 and 13, uh, Paul makes this statement. He tells the believers that it is their task, it is their responsibility to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. He says, yeah, you, you go and work it out. If he would have stopped there, I would have been like, I'm done. There, there's no way. I, 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 can't, I can't work this out. I can't do this by myself. There's no performance that I could give uh, on a day-to-day basis that is going to account, that is going to make up for the fallenness of my, my flesh and my body. Paul says, no, I want you to work out this salvation with fear and trembling, but understand, but no, it is God who's already been working in you. Paul, is never, he's never going to give an imperative. He's never going to give an assignment. He's never going to tell you to do something without making sure that you understand that whatever it is that you do for God is always first and foremost rooted in what he's already done for you. Because we like to perform. And, and on those days where we think we're, we're performing pretty good, it's like you do a little dance before God with a good day. And at the end of the day, not even at the total end of the day, like 5 o'clock, you look at the guy like, whew, that was good, wasn't it? It's like 4.30 and you barely made it. But, but we like to think that that, is, that that is earning us something before God. That, 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 that for at least one period, one day, I've actually done something that can, that can earn the salvation and the grace that I stand in. Paul says, no, 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 no. This is all rooted in the mercies. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies. Now, we haven't heard this language in the New Testament outside of the writer of Hebrews of an individual presenting his or herself as a sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us that even under the old covenant, that they knew that the blood of bulls and goats could not actually atone for sin. But you and I have a high priest who was such a high priest that he went in by himself and offered up himself. That that Jesus Christ was both the offerer and the offering. That if you you think back to the tabernacle where a high priest had to go in and before they went in on the day of atonement to to make a, a sacrifice for the sins of the people, they had to first make a sacrifice for themselves because they know they weren't right. 
Can you imagine if your mediator is jacked up? Now think about that. The person who's standing in between you and God got their own issues. You know what I said? The person standing in between you and God have their own issues. I'm looking at a mediator like, yo, you did what you're supposed to do this morning? You been living right? You ain't been living right? You about to go in there for all of us. You, you good? You prayed this morning? You prayed? The mediator had to make sacrifices for himself before he could even think about representing the people. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, went in by himself. When the mediator, uh, the high priest went in the Old Testament, he went in, made sacrifices for himself, and had to bring along another uh, animal without spot or, spot or blemish. Jesus went in by himself because in the person and work that he represented, he played two roles. He was the offerer, the high priest, and he was the offering. And he offered up himself to atone for the sins of his people. Paul says, I want you now to present yourself, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This then encompasses uh, the whole of the Christian life. This is not just what we do in here on Sunday. This is not just us jamming to old school Donnie McClurkin. And I love Donnie McClurkin. I want him to know that I love him. He has ushered me in on many occasions. But this is not about what we just do in here on Sunday. That the, the, the sacrifice, the living sacrifice that Paul is reflecting here is a daily experience that your life lived in your body is a sacrifice. That it's not just what your heart is saying. You want to get your heart right. But it's not just making sure that, that my heart or my desires are at least oriented the right way. No, Paul says this thing encompasses, yes, your heart, but it has to do with what that heart posture looks like on Monday lived out. So like he talked about in chapter 6, he is concerned about what you do with your members, with your, with your, your body, with your arms, with your mouth, with, with, with how you live your life, where you go, why you go where you go, what you say, why you say what you say, how you say it. We're working with our son right now, little Jude. Uh, he just turned four. Jude has an attitude problem. And he's going to get that thing adjusted. Yes, he will. He has an attitude problem. Because Jude, we're trying to tell Jude on a daily basis, look, you can say in many instances what you want to say, but it's how you say it. I don't know where Jude got this from, but he's already, you know, doing the neck thing. And I have to, I have to pull my bride back and remind her of how much she went through birthing him out so that before she takes him out, That a whole body worship encompasses not just what you think, not just the posture of your heart. It's, 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 it's all of these things. It's, 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 it's thoughts, it's actions, it's motivations. 
Paul says, I want you to think about all of that as a sacrifice before God. And he says, this is a, this is a living sacrifice, by the way. I'm talking about uh, the new life that you've been given, the new spiritual life that you've been given. I want you to live that thing out as an offering. Now, certainly, yeah, yeah, see, yeah people might re- respond, well, you know, you know, Paul, some people are actually called uh, to give their lives for the faith. You know, there is such thing as martyrs. Paul said, yeah, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you living your life as a sacrifice before God. If it comes to that, we'll deal with that. Because, you know, we often like to go to the extreme. Every time somebody tries to tell you to do something, you try to reason it out to the extremes to actually say that you don't have to do it. Well, you can't be talking about that because people die when they do that. Okay, but you, you're not going to die. You going to be obedient then? No. Paul says, I want you to consider the life that you are living as a sacrifice, and I want that thing to be holy and acceptable to God. So he's talking about a standard of living. We often think about standard of living as referring to how much money you make. No, Paul says the standard of living has to be in accordance with what is pleasing and acceptable to God. So anything just won't do. And again, Paul is, is drawing on Old Testament sacrificial language that it had to be a lamb without spot or blemish. They couldn't just bring any old thing into the temple. So Paul says, I want you to consider your life. I want you to consider what you do, how you do it, what you think as a sacrifice before the one true and living God. And here is how he ends this verse. He says that, now your, the translation probably says, uh, it's, it's your spiritual act of worship. I think that's what the ESV says. Uh, it, it's translating a word that actually means reasonable. Uh, he's, he, he, it, it's, it's a word that actually means rational. Paul, Paul is actually, and people are, are, are concerned that Paul might be drawn on philosophical themes, and, he, and we don't want Paul to be too close to Athens, right? But, but, but Paul is drawing on a notion that this faith is actually a reasonable faith. The problem is there is an irrationality of the world that would suggest that what you and I are doing in here on a Sunday morning doesn't make sense. You have to figure out what you think about that. And oftentimes, it takes a weekly reminder, if not a daily reminder, to figure out what you actually believe about that. Because you, you'll go out there in the world, and, 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 and the world will, 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 will convince you, uh, seemingly, that, that the things that you are submitting your life to, uh, is, that, is, that really, is that really worth it? Paul addressed this in, in 1 Corinthians at the end of the book, where he actually says outrightly that if, if the resurrection isn't true, then yeah, we really pitiful up in here. Y'all singing about nothing, crying about nothing. He says, if, 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 that, if that thing isn't true, then yeah, we, we, we're in here wasting our time. That we could be at IHOP right now. He said, there is no point in any of this if he did not get up. So the question that is always and ever before you and I, both believer and unbeliever in here today, is what do you believe about this? Paul says this is, this is, this is actually your reasonable service. And if you understood deeply and truly everything that he's done for you, it would make sense. There would be no other option but for you to live your life as a sacrifice. Sacrifice. 
He says, that, that, actually, that actually makes sense. That's the logical outcome for one who has been created and purchased and bought and redeemed and is being sanctified for a future world to come. That, that, what, what makes sense is in the here and now, you would live your life out of gratitude in worship to him. Old professor of mine used to say, all sin is insanity. He says that's actually an, an irrational thing. It doesn't make sense to think that you can a- attain joy by pursuing what God said is evil. He says that's insane. So that's the height of irrationality. What makes most sense for the created thing is to align and accord his or her life with what the creator has said to do. It's just that simple. You know what you and I do? We complicate that thing. Because we don't like it to be that black and white. It's like, God, yeah, you said that, but what about when you in this situation? Paul says, it's reasonable and it makes sense based off of the mercies that you are enjoying every morning to commit your life to God as a sacrifice. And he'll say elsewhere that, look, doing this, you, 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 what, what's good about it is you, you, you're giving up something. That's the nature of what a sacrifice is. You're giving up your own prerogative and your own priorities and what you and your flesh might want to do on a daily basis. You're submitting all of that to the Spirit of God and you're offering that as a worship, as sacrifice to God. But you actually, you're coming out on top of this thing. See, this is not, Paul wants you to understand that this gospel that he's been proclaiming throughout this book, this is not something that you're, it's not like a bet you're making where you could actually end up at a loss. Paul wants you to understand that this is something that you can actually put your hope in and it will fulfill and make due on its promises. How many other things in life can you say that about? I can't even guarantee that I'm going to get up feeling healthy tomorrow. All the things that we are tempted to put that kind of trust and hope in, how many times have those things proven to not be capable of holding the burden of the hope and trust that you put in it? Paul says, I want you to understand, I'm asking you to do something. I'm asking you to commit your life as a sacrifice, basing it off of the mercies of God, the things that he has done toward you in Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. But understand that you doing this is actually not just reasonable, but it's going to end up for your benefit both temporally and eternally. In many ways, Paul is, he's he's pitching this and saying, so where is the shortcoming for you on this? Paul says it's reasonable. It's logical, and I think this is a proper reading of the end of verse 1 because in verse 2, he's going to go and say, now, don't be conformed to the world. We read this beautiful passage in 1 John chapter 2 about about how the world works. Uh, Paul here is is talking about uh, 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 conformity uh, to the pattern of the world. Uh, 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 1 John says, look, uh, don't love the world uh, because if you love the world, that means that the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
Now, th- those three things uh, are, are categories. As a matter of fact, I can guarantee you that every temptation that you will ever face will flow through one of those three categories. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, or the pride of life. You're like, no, 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 Stephen. I'm faced with some stuff that, that, that don't have nothing to do with that. You don't know what I'm being tempted with. It's one of those three, I promise you. John says, this is all that's in the world. This is all that the world has to offer. This is all that the world was offering back in Genesis 3 when Satan tempted Eve and when Adam and Eve fell. This is what was there at the beginning. She saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, that it was pleasing to the eye, lust of the eye, and that it was desirous to make her rise, pride of life. Those three, he hit them with them early. Just those three. Just those three categories. And it's actually at those points, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life, that where Adam and Eve, our first parents, fell, Jesus will succeed in Matthew chapter 4. The temptations of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 turn these stones into bread, lust of the flesh. Let me show you all these kingdoms of the world. Don't they look pretty? Lust of the eyes. You know, you can just throw yourself off this cliff, and I know because I know the word. The word says that you ain't going to even get a scratch on your foot. They're going to come flying and save you. Why don't you go ahead and do that and show us pride of life? Just those three. This is why the writer in Hebrews chapter 4 can tell us that we do not have a high priest that has not been touched by the feelings of our infirmity, but he in every way was tempted as we. You ever doubted that? Not like on Sunday in front of the preacher when he said it, but when somebody says, you know, Jesus has been tempted in all the ways you've been tempted. No, he has not. <laughs> he just hasn't. When I was coming up, the preacher said that, I'd be like, that's a lie. That's a lie. I'm going through stuff right now that Jesus never saw in his life. No, he never saw it. They didn't have those videos when he was living. When the Bible says that Jesus was tempted at all points, he was tempted at all categories. And John says, this is all that is in the world. And Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to that world. Don't let the pattern of your thinking and your living align with what that is offering. Now, you don't just do this, Paul will say, uh, by you just waking up and, and kind of, you know, you have you ever just been lack in your spiritual disciplines? Like, you know you ain't been doing what you're supposed to be doing, but you know that you need a little oomph to go, like, to live out a faithful day. And that feeling of like, okay, I ain't been reading, I ain't been praying, but come on, God, we're going to do it today. And he's like, no, you're not. You you are going to fail today. Um, uh, No, 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 no. Paul says, look, uh, uh, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. And and actually rejecting that confirmation is going to take something. It's going to take a renewing of your mind. Paul says the the way in which you, 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 you change your behaviors is by changing your beliefs. Because, because our, our, our behaviors are informed by our beliefs, whether you want to accept that or not. I can look at what somebody is doing and tell you what they think in that moment. That's always true. That what you are doing, the decisions you are making are revealing something about how you think. 
I have an older brother. I'm a middle child. I have an older brother. He's six years older. And I have a younger brother. He's six years younger. Uh, my older brother uh, has had some difficulties. He's been locked up a couple times. But I remember when I was younger, uh, my dad was having just a serious conversation with him about why he was doing the things that he was doing uh, because, you know, raised in the church and this and that, uh, come from a, a somewhat decent home. Why was he acting out and why was he behaving the way he's behaving? And my older brother said something that I, I will never forget. I, I, it was a revelatory moment for me. So I actually thought it was a good thing, but it was not a good thing. Uh, my, my older brother said, um, because I like it. I was like, well, that makes perfect sense, right? I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like my dad was very hurt by that, but in that moment, my brother had revealed the honest truth of why he was doing what he was doing. Because, because he liked it. Because there was a belief that he had about what he was pursuing that it was a pleasing and good thing to do. I was like, we're, we're getting somewhere. Because what, what, what you and I do on a daily basis says something about what kind of belief patterns are ruling in that moment. Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind the antidote to worldliness is mind renewal mind renewal takes place as you invest yourself in the word of God it's a thinking thing it's us thinking about our thoughts and about our beliefs. It's us seeking to understand why we believe what we believe. It's us trying to get to a point where we actually believe our beliefs and therefore act on those beliefs. You know, there is a, uh, I come from a, a, a tradition, um, best way to describe it is probably Baptocostal. Baptocostal is probably the best way to describe it. It's a, 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 a emergence of Baptistic ecclesiology with Pentecostal sensibilities. Um, what that could look like on any Sunday morning is something interesting, uh, but you just kind of got to flow with it. So me and uh, Amos always talking about the flow. Uh, uh, and like, what is that? Well, if you don't know what the flow is, then you just don't know. Uh, but but uh, it, it's, it's emergence of, of kind of Baptistic ecclesiology with these kind of uh, 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 Pentecostal sensibilities. Um, uh, and then, then I transitioned to a kind of subset within Christendom, Christendom that was that was more uh, philosophical, that it that it was more of a of a thinking space. And and one of the things that's always frustrated me is that somehow we've separated these things in our in our worship and in our practice and in our ecclesiology that you will either be a thinking person or you will be a feeling person. But you can't be both of those things at the same time. And so we tend to have churches where folks are either very reserved and very thinking and pensive, or we have churches where folks are going, you know, I used to run around the church. I was like, really? Yeah, I did, really. <laughs> and then I got in an ecclesial context that told me that that actually wasn't how one ought to behave themselves. And, and I found myself wrestling with uh, the, the, the question of whether or not I'm going to give myself over to the life of the mind or a, a faith that actually touched my feelings. And I want to share with you that you can actually have both uh, that, that I actually argue for a reasoned faith that you actually come in here and you mentally apprehend something, that you comprehend something. I don't want you to turn your brain off when you get to the door. I want you to check and think and listen and hear. 
so that you actually leave with something uh, uh, intellectually that you didn't have when you came in here because I know this for a fact that if you just come in here and get a feeling, that feeling is going to fade really fast. It, it, it might create a good worship experience. We might have a good time in here, but that feeling very quickly when it is confronted with the system of the world on Monday, you'd be like, well, what did I feel on Sunday? So I don't just want you to feel something. I want you to know something so that your feeling can be dictated by what he has told you in his word. You can, you can, you can have both. Paul, Paul's not suggesting here that, that this entire thing is just about you mentally assenting to truths. Paul just wants to make sure that the life that you live is rooted in truth. You know, there, there are a lot of people out there uh, saying and doing things in the name of Christianity that ain't got nothing to do with Christianity. You, you realize that? Just be talking to somebody and they're like, you know, yeah, you know, and, and God wants us to do this and Jesus is all about this. And you're just like, what? Where are you at? <laughs> Help me with that. Did you just make that up? No, we want this thing to be rooted in truth. Because if we come in here and we just have a good time over things that aren't true. I've said elsewhere that you can go somewhere else and get that. You can actually go to the club and get that. You can have a good time on stuff that ain't true. Ain't true about you. Ain't true about your life. You're probably not going to be driving that ever. Unless you steal it or something. But Paul says, I, 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 I don't want you to be conformed to the pattern of this age. I want you to be renewed in your mind so that you will then be able to prove what is the will of God. You don't discern the will of God apart from the word of God. His will is in his word. I like to think that I can come to a place where I can imagine what it is that God would have me to do on a daily basis. But no, I have to come back to what he's already said. And set my mind and my heart and my affections on what he said so that it can dictate my life at any given moment. So this is not something that, that you do once and for all. Yes, you have to be resolved. You have to conclude. You have to resolve this thing in your heart. But you do this daily, don't you? Or are you supposed to? You recalibrate yourself daily. And one of the things I like about, about, about this walk, uh, as we come to a close, one of the things I like about it is that, 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 that he'll let you have evidences that though you may not be where you ultimately will be, he'll let you have evidences that you see in your life that you, you're not where you used to be. He'll give you little glimpses that you're actually growing and that your mindset is actually changing, that your behavior and patterns are actually conforming to what Christ would have you to do. He'll let you see that from time to time. It might be in conversation with other people, often talking to some of my line brothers uh, uh, in my fraternity, and, you know, we just all over the place. Uh, you ever talk, be talking to somebody, and uh, you, you, as they're talking, you, you are just fascinated by the fact that they think the way that they think. It's, it's like, oh, you, you a wild boy. You actually believe that? 
And so I hear my friends talking about marriage and talking about you know, what they're going to do and what they're looking for. I'm just like, oh, you foolish. That ain't going to work. God will show you that, that, that yeah, you, you are actually progressing in this thing, that there, there, are, there, there are thoughts, patterns that, that I no longer think. There are things that I used to say that I no longer say. There are things that I used to find pleasure in that I no longer find pleasure in. He's letting you know that you are being sanctified. The Christian life is you growing in holiness and that holiness being rooted in self-denial. You see yourself doing that and increasing levels. Perfectly, no. Absolutely not. But progressively, yes. Paul here at the midway of Romans is Shifting to an exhortation about what a practical faith life looks like lived out. And he says, look, I, I am imploring you, I am begging you that, 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 that you present your bodies as sacrifices to God. Based off of all that he has done for you, based off of his mercy towards you, I'm telling you that this is your responsibility. And it makes sense. He says, but what you're going to need to to, to also do that attends this calling is that you're going to have to make sure that your your life, that your pattern of living is not conformed to this world. In order to continually live your life as a pleasing sacrifice to God, your mindset is going to have to change. That if you want to actually do the will of God, you're going to actually have to start thinking his thoughts after him. It has always been true and until somebody makes up their mind they're going to do something or not do something, there's nothing you can do either. You can help somebody as much as you can. But until their mind changes, until there is a transformation that takes place in the faculties of their thinking, their behavior is not going to change. And what's the beauty of the gospel is that the Bible tells us that he, he doesn't just work on us from the outside, presenting us with reasonable reasons why we should change our minds. He actually, uh, the Bible says, he actually takes out a stony heart and puts in a heart of flesh. In other words, he has to give you a quality of spiritual life so that you want to change. You know how fallen, if you're not a Christian, you know how fallen and broken uh, the Bible says that we are. We don't even want to do the right thing. We don't desire God. We don't search after God. That there is something about the fallen nature that actually sets itself up in opposition to God. God has to come in and change that orientation before we can even talk about living a life of faith. So God gives the believer a change of heart so that believer is now awakened to see their sin and their need for the gospel. They respond in repentance and faith and then God gives them uh, through the Son, the Father and the Son, give the Holy Spirit to then dwell in the life of the believer so that they can walk out righteousness. But that walking out of righteousness, again, is not so that I can earn the salvation. He already gave that to me. 
you and I operate from a position of victory. We're not trying to work our way into victory. The implications that Paul are going to go into after 12, uh, 1 and 2, covers a broad range of things. Talk about how you talk to one another, uh, how you worship, uh, the reasons why you give. All these things, he will say, flows from the mercies of God in Christ and the individual thinking thoughts that are different than the thoughts of the world. This is something that I'm aspiring to. Uh, I have not apprehended or attained it. Paul will say this of himself. Uh, We come in here week after week, or at least I do, uh, to be reminded that what the world says is of value is not true. Uh, To be reminded that there is actually something greater worth living for. To be reminded that uh, what I see uh, is not ultimately what is. Uh, And that's one of the hardest things for the Christian to learn. That the thing that I'm seeing is not all that there is. And so I'm called to walk a life of of faith uh, uh, that is rooted in a belief and not rooted in sight. That just takes time, right? Because you're like, I'm I'm looking at things. I'm looking at my circumstance. I'm looking at the things that are going on in the world. And it's looking a certain way. And the Bible is telling me that what looks to be true is not all that is true. And is not all that there is. You and I got to be reminded of that. And so we come in here to encourage each other to reckon with the reality that the Bible says is true over and against what the world says is true. And Paul says, again, we're doing all of this. And it's a hope that doesn't make a shame. In other words, it's going to come through at the end of the day. If you're not a Christian in here today, I just want to leave you with this. Um, as I'm thinking about my older brother again. The Bible says there's going to come a day where we all have to give an account for the lives that we've lived in the body. The body is a very big deal for Paul. I don't have time to go into the theology of the body, but he's very much so concerned about what we do with our bodies. Uh, and he says that we're going to have to give an account for the things done in the body. Um, uh, that, that giving of an account, um, that coming before God and having to give an answer for the things that you've done with your body, that, that, that's pretty real, right? Like think about, think about what you did with your body last week, Right? Uh, things that you said, things that you thought, things that you did. Um, uh, that, that giving of an account, if you're not a Christian, that giving of an account is going to prove something to be true. And what it's going to prove to be true is that you and I are utterly incapable of living a perfectly righteous life. And we've proven that by things that we've done with our bodies. And so the question then becomes, why in the world would a holy and righteous God be in fellowship, be in relationship with you based off the things that you've done in your body? And the answer is, he shouldn't. As as awesome as you and I might think that we are, as good of days that we have, the Bible actually declares that that he actually shouldn't, that that if that's actually true of us, then in order to maintain his holiness, he should separate himself from us. So that in Christ, the Father sends his Son to live a perfectly righteous life. In other words, Christ lives a life in the body that is fully pleasing to God. He satisfies all the righteous requirements of the law. All the things that we could not do, Christ does. 
And then Jesus dies as a substitute for all of those who would ever believe. In other words, all of those who would place their faith and trust in Jesus, that he lived a perfectly righteous life, that he died on my behalf, that he was raised from the dead, that I can be justified in that resurrection. All those who place their faith and trust in that, the Bible says he treats you like you live Jesus's life. That never gets old. If it's old, it's something wrong with us. The Bible says he will treat you as if you lived his life. And on the cross, the father is treating the son like he lived your life. Your life is whack. In Jesus' name, it's whack. The father says he's treating his son like he lived your life. And by you placing your faith in the son, he turns around and treats you like you lived Jesus' life. So he has the righteous life that you need to be reconciled to the Father. You don't have it. It's alien. It's other. The way you have it appropriated to yourself is that you place your faith and trust in him. Apart from that, on that day of reckoning and of giving an account, there is nothing else you will be able to appeal to. There's nothing else you can say. So, In all of this, we're offering Jesus to you as those who have found life in him. And he has so much life in him that you can come to and get some of that life. And that the life that he's calling us to live now in faith, it's on the basis of the fact that you have been reconciled. That there is no better news than that in the world. If, 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 if at any moment I am not believing that that is the case, there is something wrong with me. And I know that to be the case because there's a lot that is wrong with me. But Paul is drawing us in to follow a command to live a life of worship to God based off of the awesomeness that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not convinced of his awesomeness, you're not going to live a life of sacrifice. It's just the case. He is banking on the fact that if the Spirit of God resides in you, that what is going to take effect on you when he calls you to live a life of sacrifice and worship to God is that it is worth it. Do you believe that today? I'm always asking myself, do I believe that even right now? Let's pray. Father, uh, as I read over and over and over these verses and this book and the grounds upon which you call us to, to live a life of sacrifice, I was utterly reminded that um, my affections, oftentimes our affections are set on the wrong things, that we have been influenced I have been influenced by the pattern of this world that pleasures and joys uh, that the world offers as enticing. I believe them to be true. And and what that has done is that has has, has shifted now uh, how I perceive the truth of the gospel. That it is challenging the value that I place in that thing because I have 
as an idolater place value in something else. Father, I pray that if that's true uh, for any of us in here, that you would, one, just bring it to our attention. Uh, that we would be humble enough to recognize that, that that is the case. And that, Father, that you would help us, that you would uh, move us from uh, that place of idolatry to that place of true worship. Uh, that, Father, you would, by your spirit, uh, remind us that uh, that which uh, we've placed our faith and trust in, that that, that gospel, that person, that, that, that thing is, that there's nothing more important than that in this entire world. That what John says is actually true, that all that the world is offering is passing away. Father, help us to, to know that today, that as we leave out of here today, that, that this world and the things of the world are passing away. But whoever does the will of the Father will endure forever. Father, I pray that you would root that in our hearts. And if there's someone in here who does not know you, Father, I pray that, uh, that the thought of giving an account for things done in the body would be a sobering thought, even as it is for the believer, would be a sobering thought, and that you would use that, Father, to draw them to the foot of the cross, that they might see that the only available righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, and that if they would place their faith and trust in him, um, just as it was for Abraham, you would take that faith, that belief, and it will be accounted as righteousness because it is, in fact, Jesus' righteousness that they're trusting in. Father, I pray that you would do it uh, for their good, uh, both now and in eternity. And Father, I pray that you'd be glorified, not just in this worship experience, but be glorified in our lives on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, every day thereafter. Um, help us, Lord, to live our lives before you and on looking Lord. And may you be pleased with the lives that we live. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.